This week on Blue 58, Brian Gutekunst has been the general manager of the Packers for six months now. There have been cuts, signings, trades, a draft, and more. So what do we make of what he's done in the big chair so far? Let's take a look. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very excited to be with you here for episode number 84. And 84 is a special one for us because we've got a big, big topic to look at this week. It was January 8th of this year that Brian Gutekunst was officially announced as the general manager of the Green Bay Packers, becoming the successor to Ted Thompson, who was let go is not really the right way to put it, but moved out of that position by the Packers after being on the job since 2005, all the way back in the Mike Sherman era in Green Bay is when he took over. Long, long time ago already. Now Brian Gutekunst has the top job and he's been here for six months as of this week. And he's done quite a few things. So I thought we would just take an entire episode and devote it just to looking at what Brian Gutekunst has done so far. I've come up with about 15 big moves that he's made. We're not going to look at each and every transaction the Packers have made during his time I guess in office is one way you could put it, but we're going to look at what I think are the 15 biggest and most impactful moves the Packers have made, or put a different way, the 15 moves that I think I can say something at least somewhat interesting about. We've broken these down into a few different categories. We've got releases, guys that have been cut by the Packers, Uh, the passes, guys the Packers have ultimately decided not to take. Uh, or not to offer a contract. Guys, they haven't re-signed the signings. Pretty straightforward there. Uh, uh, one trade, uh, the NFL draft, and then the head scratchers. A couple moves that just maybe don't really make a whole lot of sense and don't really fit into any one of these other categories. So, with that laid out as our roadmap for this episode of Blue 58, let's dive right in, shall we? Starting with the releases. Two notable ones so far in the Brian Gutekunst tenure, and I think one is going to pique a lot more people's interest than the other. That, of course, would be the release of Jordy Nelson. And as we look at a move, we're going to look at three different areas. The thought process for that move, try to understand why it was that the Packers did this and whether or not that was a good idea, because I think you have to evaluate each of these moves on, on at least two fronts from, from the decision standpoint. First, was the decision well thought out? Secondly, what were the results of that decision? Some of these, we're not going to see the results just yet. So we're going to look at the thought process. Then we're going to look at the short-term impact of that decision. Then try to prognosticate what the long-term impact of that decision could be. So releasing Jordy Nelson, what are we thinking here? Well, it's pretty clear. I think what the Packers are looking at, Jordy Nelson is aging and was not as effective last season as he's been in the past, in part because of an injury to Aaron Rodgers, but in part, I think, justifiably because he is a little bit older. Uh, Even if he wasn't injured or in 2015 or Aaron Rodgers wasn't injured in 2017, honestly, the shelf life for Jordy Nelson's career probably is pretty short. Even assuming everybody is healthy and there are no pre-existing health issues there for, uh, for Nelson, his career is closer to the end than to the beginning. That's not a knock on on Nelson. That's just a reality. It, receivers especially need as much as athleticism as they can squeeze out of their bodies as possible, and Nelson's opportunity to do that is uh, diminishing. Uh, he was also fairly expensive, 
And uh, he, again, was not as productive last year as you probably would have expected, even with the injury to Aaron Rodgers. So the Packers decide to move on. Short term, that does leave a hole at receiver. And the Packers really haven't adequately filled that hole yet. I know they spent a lot of draft picks on, on rookies this spring. That's fine. One or more of them may develop into good players, but we shouldn't expect a big impact from them in the short term. They really do need one of those rookies to step up, lest they really find themselves short on capable wide receivers. We're asking a lot from Geronimo Allison and three day three draft picks to replace even the minimal production that Jordy Nelson had last year. Long term, though, we're not seeing much of an impact from this move. Jordan's legacy in Green Bay is secure. He's always going to be one of the most loved players of his time in Green Bay. But I'm not sure he was going to be here in 2019 anyway. His contract expired after the, the 2018 season. Nelson may just have decided to retire, and I'm not sure he's going to play out the life of his deal in Oakland anyway. So long-term impact, probably not that much. Nelson's going to come back to Green Bay. He's going to uh, be a member of the Packers family forever. He'll always be thought of as a member of the Packers. That's not in doubt. And his impact in Green Bay probably wasn't going to extend much into the future anyway. The second cut of the Brian Gutekunst era that I think is worth talking about is uh, that of Joe Callahan. He was released in April of this year. The thought process here also pretty clear. Joe Callahan wasn't very good. Uh, he was expendable. And uh, the Packers really just kept the wrong quarterback last summer. It was Taysom Hill or Joe Callahan. They kept Callahan, tried to sneak Hill through the waivers. It didn't work, and the Packers were left with a former Division Three quarterback, ultimately as their number two guy behind their starter. Not great. Uh, the short-term impact of this move, uh, well, kind of an indictment of the previous regime for keeping him so long. The Packers really didn't even consider keeping him into their offseason program really shows what they thought of him. They had seen all they needed to see of Joe Callahan. And uh, yeah, um, they didn't need to see any more for, for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, they do need, or they did need as a result to find kind of another camp arm, but that's really, I mean, who cares? You, these guys are a dime a dozen, just a number four quarterback to throw a few passes to your seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, twelfth receiver that you have in camp. Who cares? You can find one of those guys just about anywhere. Long-term impact, there is none here. So those are the two big cuts of the Brian Gutekunst era. Two passes for the Packers since Gutekunst took over. First and foremost, not re-signing Morgan Burnett. The Packers decided to move on from their safety, who is aging, but not that old. Thought process pretty much comes down to money here, I think. The Packers are not interested in giving Morgan Burnett the contract he was looking for. And once Burnett started sniffing around, it looked like nobody was going to give him anything much of a contract. And he ultimately just signed with the Steelers, and the Packers seemed pretty content to let him go. I think you can see why they, they decided to move on and didn't really care to get into a bidding war of any kind with anybody. Just kind of moved on. Uh, the window for Burnett is probably pretty short, a lot like Jordy Nelson. You could see it a little bit last year. Burnett didn't have quite the range that he used to. And pretty much as soon as Josh Jones was picked last spring, the window for Burnett began to close. Short term, though, 
this does put a little bit of a damper on the back end of your defense. There really isn't a lot of consistency among your safety group. Ha ha Clinton Dix is off ha ha Clinton Dixing. Whatever he's doing right now, not showing up to organized team activities, something we'll take on a little bit later. But beyond Mr. Clinton Dix, there's just not really much of a veteran presence in that group at all. And that's not to say those guys can't be good, but you don't have much in the way of proven commodities. Burnett, diminished though he may have been, was that at least. This also puts you in a position short term where Josh Jones and Kentrell Bryce, at the very least, have to step up, uh, have to get used to being under the microscope a little bit more. Long term, the impact of this decision is sort of to be determined. Remember a couple of years ago when safeties were all the rage, they were the new market I guess, inefficiency on defense. Everybody had to have great safeties, possible safeties you could have. That seems to have come and gone really quick um, as we've had more of these hybrid safety linebacker types. They're kind of filling the role that people thought they wanted from safeties. Now we're on to these guys that can do multiple things, play a little linebacker, cover in the slot, stuff like that. Uh, I'm not really sure if there is a traditional safety role as much as there was when we were really concerned about safeties a couple years ago. So long-term, a bit of a a mystery here. The Packers also chose not to resign Jeff Janis this offseason. I think the thinking here is pretty clear. Janis gave you pretty much nothing but special teams, and he was good at what he did, great on special teams, but that's a pretty replaceable skill set. On top of that, the uses for Jeff Janis were diminishing. Uh, yes, he's great on punt coverage, but he didn't return kicks anymore. And even if he did, the market for kick returners is about as l- low as it could possibly be just because of the way the, the kick kick off and as a result, kick return is being phased out of the game. This also signals to me a change in philosophy with what the Packers are thinking in terms of their roster spots. You can't at least uh, reading this sort of move, can't count on a roster spot if you can only do one thing. And I'm a big fan of that because it's not a real efficient use of the space on your roster to just have a guy who just is out there for a play that you want to eliminate from your repertoire as much as possible. Ideally, you're not punting at all in a given game and you're keeping a guy around just so he can cover those plays that you don't want to do in the first place. That seems like a bit of a stretch to me, but that's pretty much what Jeff Janis was in 2017. I think it's pretty justifiable to move on from that. Short term, you do need somebody who can do that. The punt isn't gone completely, and it's probably never going to go away, so you do have somebody, have to have somebody who can cover punts, and the punt coverage as a result of him being gone is probably going to get a little bit worse in the short term, but long term, there is close to no impact from deciding not to re-sign Jeff Janis as good as he was on special teams, one I think pretty easily. Moving on to the signings. These are the big ones from Brian Gutekunst so far because we just haven't seen a lot of these in the Ted Thompson era. I think there are five ones worth talking about so far in his tenure in Green Bay. We've got to start with Jimmy Graham. Uh, the thought process, he's a good player. At least you think he is. You, you hope he can still be a pretty good player. A solid tight end, a giant tight end who can catch contested passes is about as indefensible of a weapon as you can have in the modern NFL. 
How, how do you account for a guy who's just bigger and stronger than you? It's really hard. <laughs> you can scheme around a guy like that, but it's like scheming around prime Shaq. When he was at his biggest and strongest, what do you do? They throw the ball down to him and you kind of just have to get out of the way or hope that you can knock him across the face hard enough that he misses the dunk and then has to shoot a couple free throws. Jimmy Graham and other giant tight ends like him are that kind of mismatch. You can have a strategy, but at a certain point, it's, so what? He's just bigger than you are. How do you get around that? It kind of fulfills Mike McCarthy's statement from a few years back. You know, you're looking for big guys running down the middle of the field. That's hard to stop. And also in the short term, Graham has a pretty low cap hit. This is not something that's crippling the Packers this season or really all that much long term. The short term impact is the Packers got a pretty big weapon here, figuratively and literally. He may finally be the big time regular season impact tight end that the Packers have been looking for. Jared Cook really wasn't that bad or that big of an impact in the regular season. He had a big play in the playoffs, that's for sure. Uh, Martellus Bennett wasn't a big impact really anywhere except for a thud that was the end of his career. Maybe Jimmy Graham can finally be that guy. Uh, But he does raise some big questions in the short term. Uh, What version of Jimmy Graham are the Packers getting? Is he going to be closer to the Seattle, not really sure what we're doing with this guy sort of player? Or is he going to be the unstoppable weapon that we saw in New Orleans? Probably he is not going to be one of one or the other completely, just because the Packers are probably more creative with their tight ends. The Seahawks were last year, but also he's a little, well, not a little, significantly older than he was in New Orleans, and his impact there is probably diminished as well. Long term, the impact of this move is a little bit more hazy. Uh, The Packers gave Martellus Bennett essentially a one-year deal that could turn into a two-year deal that could turn into a three-year deal last offseason, and Jimmy Graham has pretty much gotten the same thing. The Packers have outs that can save them significant amounts of money after every year of this deal. That kind of gives the the Packers protection no matter how long Graham is good. So we have to kind of wait and see both short and long term what kind of player Graham turns out to be. Such is the case with the Packers' second big signing this offseason, Muhammad Wilkerson. The thinking here is pretty clear. He should be motivated. He should. He's relatively cheap, low cap hit for Wilkerson, and he's got a connection to Mike Pettin, who he has played well for in the past. Short term, the Packers strengthen a strength here. Their defensive line was good before they got Muhammad Wilkerson, and even if he's not, you know, 75% of the player he was during his Pro Bowl years, he still should be a solid depth player. It's never a bad idea to continue to get stronger at an area that is already a strength. Plus, he's a huge high upside player. If he does turn out to be closer to 85-90% of the player he was during his Pro Bowl years, you've got a monstrous defensive line between Mike Daniels, Kenny Clark, and now Wilkerson. That's pretty great. Long term, this one is a big question mark because I would say there's a better than 50-50% chance that he is not in Green Bay in 2019, no matter what happens. If he does really well this season, he's probably going to get a big contract extension and go elsewhere. If he does bad, why would you keep keep him at all? You just move on. So long term, it's really... I can, maybe you shoot for middling there 
and you keep them long term, but you don't really want that because that doesn't help you now. I think you just have to kind of take this one as it comes with Wilkerson. Signing Tremont Williams is big move number three in terms of signings for Brian Gutekunst. Thinking here, again, very clear, still pretty solid at 34, really pretty affordable in terms of free agent um, cornerbacks. He's got a Mike Pettin connection. He's got, obviously, very strong Green Bay connections. This is a, a decent depth signing. It's low risk in the short term. Long term, I don't know if I buy so much the idea of this veteran player coming in and tutoring the young guys. We hear stuff like that every offseason, like, oh, they, they need some guy who can show these players the ropes, show them how it's done. I don't know if I buy that, uh, at least from an on-the-field perspective. I do, to an extent, buy the idea of older guys so sort of teaching guys how to be professional football players. Just, you know, how do you go about the work of being a professional athlete? You know, getting to meetings, handling your playbook, handling your time, handling your rest, your recovery, all the things like that that take some time to learn and figure out. I think veteran guys, especially guys like Tremont Williams, can be a big, big help for. So if he's going to have any sort of mentorship impact, it's probably in that sort of capacity. Two more signings here for Brian Gutekunst, and these ones shouldn't really be a surprise. We're not going to talk about Devon House. I don't think that's a big deal. I think that's a if he shows anything in camp, he'll probably end up on the roster. If not, they'll probably go with one of their younger undrafted types and just move on. Not a lot to say about that one. But Mercedes Lewis and Byron Bell, I think, are worth talking about. First, Lewis. Uh, this is the light version of adding strength to a strength. Tight end, a, more of a strength with Jimmy Graham on board than it's been in some time in Green Bay. Adding Lewis adds a little bit more strength to that already stronger position. He does some things the Packers didn't have a lot of, namely blocking. And he adds that unique skill set that I always say guys who are backups need to have. Short term, you get depth and contributions from your backups, which is a great departure from what we've seen in the past, where backups generally just were kind of... I don't know if you got anything from them at all. It was just a huge bonus, not something expected. This is a signing where we are expecting the backup tight end to contribute. Long term... Not a big impact here, but I think that is fine for a guy that you're signing in late May anyway. The second signing, Byron Bell. This one I am still confused by. I don't really understand the thinking here. Bell has not been great at any of the positions he's played in his professional career so far. Not at left tackle, not at right tackle, not at guard. He gives you some depth, but what kind of depth? And why all but guarantee him a roster spot with the big signing bonus? He does give you some more bodies and more options on the offensive line, but options is really about it. He doesn't really solve anything. To be fair, I'm not really sure you're going to solve your offensive line issues such as they are in late May, early June. You're pretty much playing with the hand you've been dealt at that point. But, you know, if that's true, why bother bringing him in at all? I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't really understand it. I would have thought maybe you, you give him a, a really low-end contract, uh, not a lot of bonus money, and then just see what happens. But maybe there was some competition there that we don't know about. And true, to be fair, it wasn't like they were breaking the bank to, to sign him anyway. So I, I don't know. Um, it seems like they're counting on him to be more of a solution than I think he can be. But, you know, that's why they evaluate him and I do a podcast. The trade. We've got to talk about the trade from this offseason because this sets up a couple other things uh, in the draft for the Packers. 
Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the Demarius Randall and picks for Deshaun Kaiser and picks trade. This one takes a little unpacking because on the surface, it doesn't seem like a trade you'd be all that interested in if you're the Packers. Demarius Randall is your best cornerback, and uh, Deshaun Kaiser is a guy that you hope never plays. But looking behind the scenes, it seems like Demarius Randall was on the way out in Green Bay one way or another. Uh, he was not a guy who had a lot of support in the locker room, wasn't a fan, wasn't um, a guy who had a lot of support from the coaching staff, just seemed to have a bad attitude and wasn't consistently productive in the way that you would expect from a first-round pick. And whether or not he should have played cornerback or safety or whatever is an entirely different conversation that is not Brian Gutekunst's fault. It, we can't really do anything about that anyway. So I don't want to add that into the equation, but I'm sure I guess that is part of the question here. On the flip side of that, the Packers were high on Deshaun Kaiser and did have a need in their quarterback room. Uh, Brett Hundley was not great last year. Don't know if you heard, but uh, things did not go well uh, in his stretch as the starting quarterback for the Packers. So they picked up a guy they really liked and were able to get rid of a guy who was a bit of an attitude concern, and they got a little extra consideration with those added draft picks anyway. Short term, this trade made a hole where you really didn't have a hole before. Why weaken your secondary when you don't have to? I understand the concerns about his attitude and stuff like that, but if you don't have to cause trouble in your secondary, it seems like a questionable thing to do that if you don't have to. It forced the Packers as well to address the secondary in the draft, and they may have done that anyway, but by trading Randall, you essentially said, yes, we absolutely have to do this. So it puts the Packers in a tough situation there. Long term, I think this actually strengthens the Packers. Uh, it forces you to make a decision on Brett Hundley sooner or later, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So the Packers are, are stronger there, or I don't know if stronger is the right word, but they will have to make a decision and just be done with it. That's never a bad thing. The Packers also have a little bit more incentive here to really evaluate their quarterback decision situation because they've got another guy that they've put a lot of resources in. Ultimately, it does give you a little bit of stability if Kaiser turns out to be good or if Hundley turns it around because of this added competition. So that's never a bad thing to me. And it may set you up for an option of trading one of these guys or both if you really get good offers down the road. So it does give you a little bit of flexibility there. It also gave the Packers some more ammunition in the draft. Speaking of the draft, there were a lot of people when we talked about this on social media who were a big fan of the Packers making the decision under Gutekunst to do a bunch of trading around in the first round. The thought process to me here is the Packers have the best draft slot they've had in quite some time. And one way to maximize that is to just stand pat and get the best player you can. But another way to do that is to do exactly what the Packers did. They, they sold the spot, essentially, for... They sold high. They got a lot for that, that slot. Uh, picked up a first-round pick for their troubles. Uh, really, it also represented to me bending the draft to you, not necessarily waiting for it to come to you, making things happen, moving around, picking up extra assets where you can. Short-term, the Packers passed on some more highly-touted players to just get more players. 
the Packers end up with more people than they would have on balance both this year and next year by trading back. They may have also gotten a guy that they liked at 14 at 18 and picked up another first-round pick for their trouble. Long-term impact, that first-round pick. Um, And the value of that first-round pick, I guess, is very obviously yet to be determined. But you've got to like the odds of the Packers getting a good return on that trade, no matter where that pick ends up being. A second trade in the draft that I think we need to talk about is the move to trade up for Oren Burks. The thinking here is you got to get back into the third round. You gave up that third round pick to trade from 27 to 18 to get uh, Jair Alexander. And you had the opportunity to use some of the ammunition from the Demarius Randall trade to get another guy that you really like. Short term, the Packers are getting more athletic in the middle of the defense. But long term, I wonder if the Packers gave up some guys that they maybe could have used just as much as Oren Burks. Uh, We talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast, so I won't dive into it too deeply here, but they gave up picks 101 and 147 for pick 88. 88 turned out to be Burks, but 101 was Ian Thomas, the tight end out of Indiana, and 147 was Micah Kaiser, a linebacker from, I think, Virginia Tech, one of the Virginia schools. I'm not really sure. Uh, He was a guy that fit what we projected the Packers were looking for at, at inside linebacker. Had the Packers just stood pat, they could have addressed two positions of need, potentially, instead of just the one. We don't know, obviously, how any of these guys are going to play out, but the Packers could have essentially gotten the same deal and a little bit extra by doing nothing at all. That's something we're going to have to watch a little bit long term. Three more things to look at here. Uh, Also in the draft, the Packers taking two specialists. Um a punter in J.K. Scott, and a long snapper in Hunter Bradley. The thinking here, you got to have these guys, so you might as well get the exact ones that you want. And the Hunter Bradley pick in particular was one that was extra. Any pick that they got in the Laurenti McCree trade, not last year, but the year prior, all the way back in 2016. I don't know if I ever really agree with taking a punter, but if there's one that you really want, I guess I understand spending a, three, a day three pick on him. But... Short term, you are giving up on Justin Vogel after a good season, and you're passing on a position like, say, edge rusher, outside linebacker, defensive end, whatever, where you could have gotten some more help that you desperately need. Not to say there was necessarily help available, but you do pass on the chance. The long-term impact of these moves is the stuff that we just talked about, only more so. As time goes on, anybody that you would have picked with that J.K. Scott pick or that Hunter Bradley just becomes a a worse and worse miss if they turn out to be any good. Two head scratchers, and then we're done with our 15 moves of the Brian Gutekunst era. The decision not to get any edge rush help at all this offseason is a big question mark for me. I'm not sure what the thinking is here because short term, your depth pretty much just ends up being exactly as it was last year. And last year, that depth was not great. Um, maybe the Packers think with their change to a new scheme under Mike Pettin, you get a little bit different results with the same players. That's one way of looking at it. I'm not sure I am completely swayed by that line of thinking, but that is one way to look at it. Long term, I'm not really sure if there is an impact by not going with an edge rusher this offseason, but short term, it doesn't seem great, especially if Clay Matthews or Nick Perry get hurt 
and there is good historical reason to assume that both of them will be hurt. Finally, the Kyle Fuller offer sheet. Uh, the Packers, during the throes of the second round of free agency, um, the, that second wave that kind of once all the big names are off the market, uh, some interesting stuff starts happening with the guys that are maybe on that second tier. Right in the thick of that, the Packers extended an offer sheet to Chicago's Kyle Fuller, a restricted free agent, not a restricted transition tagged player. And that offer was not really all that generous. Um, it wasn't the sort of thing that the Packers really put the Bears in a tough position and it was going to be tough for them to match that offer. So I'm not really sure what the Packers are thinking. Maybe they were hoping the Bears just decided, eh, we don't really like him that much anyway. Go ahead and take him. But really, that's really the only hope the Packers could have had. So why bother at all if, if you're just hoping that the Bears are just like, sure, fine, whatever. That's really the only option with the contract structured as it was. Short term, this doesn't do anything to hurt the Packers. Long term, it doesn't do anything either. It's just a, a questionable thing and you really, why do it at all? I don't I don't understand it. Um, I, I feel like I've changed my opinion on this one a little bit. I thought I saw more of a case for it in the past. You, the Bears probably did pay more for Fuller with this offer sheet than they had planned to, but not a lot more. And the cash flow really isn't that different for them. So again, why bother? I just I don't understand it. The, if there's anything that I don't like about the Gutekunst era so far, these this is a very small criticism, mind you. But if there's anything I don't like, it's there's been a few of these moves that seem like why why do this at all? Uh, the the Fuller offer sheet, uh, not getting help for edge rushers, taking specialists in the draft. I go back and forth on that one. Signing Byron Bell. Um, even to an extent, the the trade for Demarius Rand or the Demarius Randall to Sean Kaiser trade. I just sometimes it seems like we're we're trying to be too cute by half here, and it really doesn't make a lot of sense for me. But you know that's a pretty pretty small concern, and in in the grand scheme of things, not a super super big deal. I threw out a question on social media today, asking your thoughts on what you thought the biggest move of the, the Brian Gutekunst era has been so far. Uh, some of the highlights from those, um, a lot of people like the the moving around to get more help in the secondary, Jair Alexander. A lot of people liked uh, the first round pick that the Packers picked up in next year. Uh, Mark Elke points out on Facebook that the Packers haven't lost a game in the Gutekunst era, which is great and uh, can't be emphasized enough. This one... Uh, among all the others, and a lot of great thoughts here. Um, this one from Luke Woodford on Twitter is probably the one that kind of encapsulates my feelings most of all. Luke says, not sure about the biggest single move. Biggest surprise to me was the offer sheet for Fuller. It didn't stick, but that showed me he was looking at every possibility to improve the roster. And I guess that's as good a bow to put on this discussion about Gutekunst as, as any. As I've said, there are some moves that he's made that I haven't understood, uh, maybe even haven't been a fan of, but you can't deny that Gutekunst is really, it really seems obvious that he is looking at every possible opportunity to improve the Packers roster. And if there's any criticism that I think everybody can agree on, Ted Thompson fan or not, that you can agree on about the Ted Thompson era, a shortcoming of Thompson's was that he seemed to cut himself off from 
some avenues of player acquisition unnecessarily. Gudikuns doesn't seem to be falling into that sort of situation, and I think that is good to see. I've enjoyed the first six months of the Gudikunst era. While I've got you here, I want to talk for a second about HaHa Clinton Dix. He has stayed away from organized team activities so far, and that is his right. These are voluntary off-season workouts. But I've seen a couple things that I think we need to talk about. First, like I said, these are voluntary workouts. He doesn't have to be there. But he made some pretty harsh comments late last season, early in the offseason, about a lack of accountability on defense, uh, the, that there was not a group of veteran players who could step up. The Packers needed more guys like that. To hear those marks and then not see him at organized team activities is a head-scratcher because it's not a good look for him. However, I want us all to reserve judgment on this until we get all the facts. He has not said anything online about this. He has not said anything to reporters. There have been no anonymous sources, nothing giving any sort of indication as to why he has chosen to stay away. The Packers haven't said anything either. We just don't know what the situation here is. I will say that it's a bad look for him, especially with the Packers having a new defensive coordinator in town and him being in a contract year, Clinton Dix, that is. But we need to resist the temptation to react now, as bad a look as it may be, until we have all the information. Sooner or later, there's going to be a voluntary minicamp, not in, not a voluntary, excuse me, a mandatory minicamp, that he's going to have to be at. And I bet we're going to get some answers then. The reasons may not be good. Ultimately, this could be a a bad decision for him and we may criticize his motives. But let's wait until we learn his motives to decide how we feel about this. I'm doing my best to do that. I hope I can count on you to do that as well. That is all I've got for you this week. I thank you very much for tuning into this episode of Blue 58 and, you know, to a larger extent, every episode of Blue 58. You can find us, as you always do, at thepowersweep.com. You may also find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching The Power Sweep at both of those fine websites. And if you'd like to reach out via email, you may reach out at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. I've missed a couple of your emails, and I'm working to respond to those over the next couple of days, so your patience is appreciated there. If you'd like to support us, you may do so first and foremost by leaving a review on iTunes. It's free, it's easy, and other people find the show. If you would like to support us financially, the best way to do so is on Patreon. Donate $1 a month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. And if you want to support us financially while looking fantastic, buy one of our fine t-shirts from teespring.com. Click the store link at our website to find our selection of shirts there. We do love to hear from you however you choose to reach out. And any feedback you give us, give us helps us make this entire operation better and helps all of us become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we are all trying to be. I'm John Meerdink. We will see you next week on Blue 58.